You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and my guest today is Heather Kibble from Cicada Seed Company. And Cicada is a name that you may not have ever heard of because they primarily sell to larger growers and to repackagers. But they got some outstanding varieties out there that we're going to talk about today. Good morning, Heather. Good morning. Now, you're a global company. and That's correct. And the company is how old? A hundred years. A hundred years old, and hardly anybody here has heard about it, but you've been in, of course, I guess it started in Japan with a name like that, but you've been in the U.S. for decades. Uh, Forty years. We celebrated our 40th anniversary in America last summer. Okay. This morning we're going to be talking about some of the new varieties and how we get how the varieties get to market um, a lot of our listeners may be surprised that they have heard from Craig LaHuyer talking about how many generations it takes to grow out the tomatoes in the dwarf tomato project and very often to stabilize a variety it's, you know it's in their eighth generation and then you on top of that have to um, have to do all the marketing and stuff and getting them out there so Yes, it requires a lot of patience, and it's a long-term focus for companies that are involved in vegetable breeding. So how, how does the process work when, you know, is it an idea, uh, somebody says, hey, Ralph, we need a tomato that's got really outstanding flavor and good re- disease resistance because we got late blight covering the western U.S. Is that gorgeous? Yeah. Sometimes it's a demand from the market saying we want something just like you described as a disease resistance or a maturity difference. Um, sometimes it's a new, it depends on the crop, but sometimes it's a new disease issue that's broken out in some part of the country and all of a sudden something is needed so that vegetable breeders are then trying to, you know, find that resistance and make it happen. But as you said, it can take years and years to get there. Um, and then other times it's a breeder looking into the future. Most of the time, it's a vegetable breeder looking into the future and trying to um, predict what the market is going to need in 10 years because that's how long it often takes (laughs) to get the new product to market. Now, did did anybody anticipate the big boom in organics? Yeah, there have been a lot of companies out there working on it for a long time, and a lot of us saw that that probably would become mainstream eventually, but you never know exactly when. So I'm happy to say that it's certainly growing, um, finally, (laughs) and there have been a lot of companies out there working on um, varieties for the organic market. Yeah, varieties that taste good and and don't need all the sprays and stuff that are used for Correct, yeah, hardier plants that don't need as much babying, um, you know, with maybe better developed root systems or more resistance to pests in the local area that you're trying to grow in. Um, I, I'm just happy that because of organics getting into the mainstream because I've been an organic gardener since the 70s. And, you know, 
I thought I was like the lone voice in the wilderness calling out and didn't think that anybody else would jump on the bandwagon. I'm so delighted to see this has finally. Yes, yeah, it's fun to see. Now, you mentioned different diseases or insects in one part of the country or another. Um, what do you see What besides late blight that, you know, is so prevalent up in the Pacific Northwest and then traveled up? the east coast a few years back on some plants what other things are you seeing out there there's powdery mildew is a big problem um, i'm in california and some of the areas here anywhere where it's damp um, where there's a heavy dew or a mist every single day <laughs> which is here in the summer um, you have powdery mildew on things like pumpkins and cucumbers the cucurbit family um, so that's an issue, and that's something we're working on. In spinach, it's something called downy mildew. Mm -hmm. um, that's in, like, the Washington, Seattle, uh, you know, that, not Seattle proper, but the outskirts of Seattle. <laughs> yeah. Up in that part of the country is where most of the spinach is grown. So the um, downy mildew races are developing very, very quickly. And for as long as I've been in the industry, it's been... Um, an issue and something that the breeders are trying to keep up with. As soon as they think that they've got, or they do have the uh, resistance they need, a new race is discovered and they start all over again. Um, yeah, so I'm familiar with that. I'm familiar with that from the way late blight happened here in Georgia at one time before before this last one about six years ago where it was traveled came, came up on plants because what they discovered was that the race uh, that hit Georgia when I was working for extension was something totally different than they had experienced elsewhere yeah, and yeah. it was you know spores that hung around that survived um, without plant matter that was kind of that was kind of a scary thing yeah but fortunately our weather doesn't usually support that so much. That's good. So yeah, anywhere where it doesn't freeze, some places it freezes in the winter, and then that will, you know, stop a lot of these things in its tracks. But places in the country where it doesn't, sometimes they're dormant um, for longer. I think. Now, when you mention insect resistance, too, is I know that when I was a kid, potato in the Midwest, potato bugs were, you know, enemy number one. My grandmother would send us out to go pick the potato bugs off of some plants. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then in the Northeast, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, it was Japanese beetles had, had invaded. Um, do you see similar things to that in different areas of the country? Yeah, there's a brassica. I can't remember the name of it, and I'm not an expert on insects, but there's a brassica pest here in California right now um, that attacks anything in the brassica family, but it's a big deal for broccoli because it just swarms and will kill the entire plant, you know, before huh. it's able to produce. Is it a worm type of bug or something else? I think it's a beetle. Huh. Oh, well, I hope that doesn't come over here. We've got enough of it. Yeah, I hope. <laughs> with, with two kinds of cabbage worms here. <laughs> I hope we, we can isolate it. Yeah, they were seeing it in Santa Maria, and then I hadn't seen it. I'm in Ventura County, and we hadn't seen it before, but all of a sudden, about last summer, <laughs> one day, there they were. So, um, Oh, dear. It's always oh, dear. something new. So the goal as a plant breeder is to make a stronger plant that either the bugs don't like or it can stand up to the damage of the bugs. Um, and still produce. Now, one of the things um, 
you mentioned is it how, how it takes so long for a variety to get to market. So once they have the idea and they go looking, what's the process for that after that? Sure, yeah. So then they're looking in, um, they have what they call a plant breeding nursery. Um, and this is where they'll have, I don't even know how many hundreds of plants growing out, open pollinated plants. And they're looking for characteristics. So there'll be just a whole area full of say cherry tomatoes I'll use this as an example, um, a whole field full of different choices and they go there looking for either, you know, say they're looking for a yellow cherry tomato so they would be looking for something that's yellow but they also want a nice plant habit um, so they might cross a red tomato with a nice plant habit with one that has yellow fruit in order to get a yellow tomato with a nice plant habit, <laughs> if that makes sense. Sure. Uh, so that can go on for years because of all the characteristics that are involved. Um, and then eventually, when they find the two parents that make the nice hybrid, um, when the seed goes into production, they're producing the two hybrid parents um, in quantity to then, in the next season, make the hybrid that we collect the seed from. So you're you describing creating an F1 hybrid, or is it yes. an F2 and, by this time? And you mentioned, no, it would be an F1, and you mentioned stabilization. They also need to make sure that there's a lot of other things we're checking besides what the fruit looks like, the plant looks like, um, disease resistance is being tested at that time, and then also that it's producing the same way every time we want to make sure it's stable before we sell it. Yeah, there's nothing like an unhappy person that has put down several thousand dollars for seeds and not true to type. <laughs> Correct. So we don't sell anything until it's perfect, basically, is our goal. <laughs> so it takes time and patience. Now, I'm curious. You said you, you went for, and maybe it was just that you were trying to give a really easy example, going for yeah. color and plant, <laughs> plant size. Do, you, do they maintain a line of you know, finding which the resistance characteristics even before yes. they get to yes. the, the each breeder part. has Yeah, they each have sets of varieties that they have. Maybe the disease resistance is in one line and the uh, uh, colors in another, plant habits in another, root systems maybe somewhere else. So yeah, there would be a lot of different varieties for the different characteristics. I mean, ideally they find one that has more than one characteristic they're looking for. Yeah. <laughs> um, from what I hear, it doesn't always work out that way, though. No, no, it doesn't. As, some, as someone who has dabbled a little bit in, in growing breedings of my own, it's amazing what happens. How complicated um, it is. And when, you never you know until things. you make the cross what you're actually going to end up with, even if it seems yeah. like... Um, you know, and, just like and you people. know, I found out <laughs> from Craig LaHuyer the other day, or maybe last year, that um, the first generation when you're tr crossing two open pollinated plants the first generation may not have any of the characteristics really that you're looking for but <laughs> yeah, the genes true. are in there waiting to come yeah. out in future generations yep that's exactly it and I here I am a fool you know if it didn't taste all that great I just said heck with it and I chunked it yeah I go on to the next thing but yeah you know that's where the patience comes in I think well, I'm now that I'm getting now that I'm learning, and now that our listeners are learning from you too, how it takes. Maybe they can get involved in in playing with their own, or finding the ones that you have bred. Now, what we've got a little bit of time before we go 
um, on to the next section, and I want to get into genetically modified versus genetically engineered, and um, there is nothing. I know that some websites, some plant catalogs have uh, signs that say it's non-GMO, but that's not a problem for a home gardener, is it? Not normally. The uh, crops that they're doing the genetic research on are usually things like sweet corn or soybeans that are grown in just huge parts of the country. Um, so unless you're growing field corn or soybeans in your garden, and not the kind that you eat, but the kind that are fed to cattle, um, probably it's not going to be an issue for you. Um, and there, there are no tomatoes, broccolis, anything like that that's out there for the home market that is genetically modified at this point, no, right? No, no. The, the investment that it would take in some of those crops is huge, so there's not not that kind of breeding done, especially because there's not the demand for it um, in products for the home garden market. Okay. And I know a lot of people are just afraid of the whole idea of genetic engineering or genetically modified, and maybe we can get into, after the break, talking about that. But for the very first sure. part, I just want everybody to relax that when we're talking about hybrid, creating hybrid plants for their garden, that doesn't mean that you're getting out there in the laboratory and genetically engineering them. They don't no, have you to worry be about able that. to do that in your home garden. <laughs> Good. And I'm, I'm glad everybody can now breathe, breathe easily and know that if they're growing their own in their own garden um, from uh, your normal seed store, you're not going to get any of that in there. You can relax, breathe easy. And we'll yes. be back talking more about this right after this break. Get your pen and paper ready. If there's a move in your near future, I'm here to tell you that the folks I used and now recommend is Around Town Movers. Timothy and the guys recently moved me, and I am and was totally satisfied with a sometimes not-so-fun experience moving. Call Timothy at 770-378-4708 and make it a good move and a good experience. Around Town Movers for that local or cross-country move. Timothy, Around Town Movers, in my opinion, are the best. That's Around Town Movers. Call them. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. My guest today is Heather Kibble from Sakata Seed Company. And Heather, right before we talk talking about the break, we, or just before the break, we were talking about getting seeds to market and hybridizing them. And Sakata has come out with a whole bunch of really cool new varieties. Can you tell us some about them? Sure. Yeah, we add um, three or four new varieties at least every year. Um, just for home gardeners, 
in addition to the varieties that are sold to our commercial growers. What we're looking for for home gardeners or small growers is um, preferably compact early plants. Sometimes the plants are big, but we realize that not everybody has a lot of space, so it's always a sure. great selling point if something is compact. Um, and then, so a great plant, preferably attractive if it's going to be in your yard for all summer long, you want to look at something nice. And then uh, flavor. Flavor is always our first characteristic that we're looking for. If something doesn't taste good, we don't sell it, basically. <laughs> um, so that's what we're looking for in new varieties. And did anything this year particularly catch your eye or in the last few years? Oh, yeah. The last few years have been, have been great. We found a line of um, Hungarian cheese peppers have been a favorite. These are little tiny lantern-looking peppers. They're sweet peppers with kind of a thick wall. Uh, we sell those in three colors, red, yellow, and orange, and they are um, great for stuffing. And then just pretty to look at. I like anything that you can put out in the garden and admire while it's growing, um, in addition to being able to harvest and eat from it is even sure. an add, added bonus. <laughs> yeah, they're pretty. You put them in a container, and, and they look like flowers out there. Yeah, they look curious. like little Christmas I'm, lights. They're really beautiful. Yeah, they do. I've never heard of a cheese pepper before. It's shaped like a wheel of cheese is why. Cheese like a wheel of cheese. You know how a, you know, a wheel of brie is um, round and kind of flattish? They're just uh -huh. that shape is why okay. they're called that. And that's what makes them good for stuffing. You take the core out, and then there's a big hollow space in there um, to fill in with whatever your fillings are, and they can be baked or eaten fresh. Um, I like to bake them with cheese inside. It makes a nice warm order. Yeah, sure. I can see that that would be lovely. Okay, so you've got Hungarian cheese peppers, and these yeah. are available are going to be available in in the market this year or next year. Those should be easy to find online for the seed. Um, right on red, yes to yellow, and orange is sweet are the variety names, and those are available now as seed. And periodically, you see them as plants in the. Um, you know, wherever you go to buy your home garden plants in the spring. Okay. What else has caught your eye? The other thing, one thing that uh, Sakata has been selling for a long time is called Red Robin, and this is a determinate cherry tomato, um, very, very determinate. It's probably the smallest tomato plant you'll ever see producing fruit. They only get to be about 10 to 12 inches high. <laughs> oh, um, I grew mine under lights, and... And they got fluorescent lights in my living room in the wintertime, and it was about <laughs> six inches tall and eight inches okay. wide, and <laughs> just produced and produced and produced, and it looked pretty, too. Yeah. You yeah. know, those There's, little those red cherries. And yeah. they'll, you know, they're great for people that have limited space. If you have a little more space, I would suggest maybe a little bit bigger plant, but if, um, because you're bending way down on the ground to try and pick the fruit. But if you're well, you put it patio, in a hanging basket. Yeah, oh yeah, they're lovely in a hanging basket. They're um, good for window boxes, large patio containers on your balcony, um, and they can be mixed well with, you know, some flowers that you're planting during the year. That kind of Short thing, whatever flowers. Yeah, yeah, something, pansies or something uh, short in the spring, and then you can be changing out your flowers as you're waiting for your tomatoes to ripen. Um, sure. But that's red robin, and then we recently um, added yellow canary, which is a yellow version, and rosy finch, which is a pink, um, all in the same size and plant habit. 
And a lot of the time you get the determinate cherry um, plants don't have good flavor, and these do have particularly good flavor, even though the plant is small and early is the other thing. It's nice and early. Yeah, as long as they get enough light. I discovered yeah. Yeah, that, that in my dark <laughs> living room, on just under fluorescent, the old-timey fluorescent lights, not even the, yeah. the newer, higher power ones. They, yeah. were, they were real pretty, but they weren't doing anything to write home about. But they don't get with the all the that LEDs get now that people can grow, I could see using an LED by a bright window and grow yeah. them inside. Yeah, I've even grown them hydroponically um, with the little kits you get in the you know the hardware the store. garden. Yeah, with the new lights um, and the little pods. Now, you don't get quite the fruit set, obviously, that you'd get in a hanging basket in the summer, but, you you know, in the winter, you're not as picky necessarily. <laughs> you're just excited to have some fresh fruit and herbs yeah, going. And, and in the, for the wintertime, having any tomato is, is yeah, just so it nice. It is a victory. <laughs> as long as, it, and especially if it doesn't come from the grocery store and tastes like cardboard. Yeah. Um, yes. But I just I enjoyed growing stuff in my arrow garden, and I'm not advertising it because I'm sure there are other you know others that are just fine out there too. But yeah. that was the first one that I became acquainted with. So I've got a real old model, and I've got my new one with LED lights that I am dying to get set up. And I probably yeah. will do They're that this afternoon in the winter. Yeah, in the winter when you're just needing to grow something and you can't outside, it's nice to have some indoor options. And for people that don't know what an arrow garden is, I'll put a link up on the website on Facebook page for you. But it's basically a container that holds water, and it's got a little pump in it to circulate the water on the plant roots. And it's got a little timer and everything, so it does its thing automatically. You plant the seeds, and you may have to go in there and, and snip off a leaf or two. Um, if it kind of gets out of bound, but most of them stay right there. I like it especially for herbs in the wintertime, so you don't have to use, you know, since you don't, so you don't have to use dried herbs all the time. There's nothing yeah. like fresh basil to perk up something. Yeah, especially and, in the winter. <laughs> yeah. So you it's can have your... kids, too. Kids love to watch because the growth happens pretty fast. It's fun for kids to be able to observe that happening. Um, Were you as blown away as I was by the speed at which the plants grow in an arrow garden? Yeah, you swear that it's happening. You know, you step out of the room <laughs> and they're growing really quick when you're not looking is what it seems like. <laughs> it's like watching time-lapse photography or something yeah. like that. Yeah. And I had a lady that would come and get eggs. A friend of mine would come and get some eggs every couple of weeks. And every couple of weeks, I was sending her home with bundles of herbs because yeah. there were yeah. just so many of them. <laughs> so that's a fun thing. I'm so glad that you got some more things in the in the little birdie line because, you know, a lot of tomatoes that were sold for use in hanging baskets, they might work in a climate that's more mild, but they don't work in a climate like ours because it gets yeah. so doggone hot in the summer that they don't have enough root volume for them. Yeah, yeah, it's hard but to get enough water sure. in some places. Even even Tiny Tim here in our climate has had problems, and I've tried it. It, it grows well in a, in a good-sized container, and it doesn't need the monster containers that some of my big old heirlooms do, uh, like yeah. a Cherokee Purple. But it doesn't do as well as you might expect in a in a container in a in a hanging basket type environment. And yeah, the you know Red Robin for you know, for an example was just a real cutie pie. 
it was great. The plants are smaller. Yeah, it doesn't need quite so much um, water and soil because it's the plant's smaller to begin with. I think that helps. And it's pretty. It's got really good-looking foliage. Oh yeah, it's, with, it's you know, nice and tight, and dark really green, nice. just like you, the the plant that everybody wants to grow to yeah. have it look good. It's nice okay, so you've nice got the little birdies for cleaning up your patio. <laughs> Sorry, it's nice to have it look nice while you're. If you're going to have a patio full of tomato plants, it's good if they're attractive. Yeah, in my case, it's my driveway garden, so it's the first <laughs> thing that everybody sees. And yeah. last year, when we had wet, wet rain, drizzle, wet and warm, wet and cold, the plants looked. Most of my tomato plants looked really ugly. Yeah. Um, so then you try the distract method. You put bright flowers someplace else so people look there instead of your red yeah. looking tomato plant. <laughs> or a wall of corn. <laughs> you know, I hadn't thought about that, but I've got some I've got some of that nice okra that was an AAS winter. I've got some seeds left. I'll have to there plant that go. in front. It makes That's a nice green and has pretty flowers. I've done um, yeah. Sunflowers are a good distractor, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and you get seeds for the birds later and on. some zinnias. If you plant enough other things around, then you can distract people from any issues you're having with some of your vegetables. <laughs> yeah, and I'm a big fan of zinnias for a couple of reasons. One of them is that they're pretty, of course, but they bring in the pollinators. And if yeah. you need pollinators to come in and be around your, you know, your squash and your cucumbers and stuff, it's a great addition for that. And then the butterflies absolutely love them. It just makes the garden even more attractive if you're, you know, luring in the pollinators. Just add another layer. Sure. Butterflies and hummingbirds. I once yeah. I walked out into my driveway, and there were three hummingbirds in the space of about oh stretching my arms out wide so yeah. maybe yeah. five feet or so it's just inc incredible so much fun yeah so what else do you have it's small and tastes good or even big and tastes good because some um, of my we have listeners <laughs> grow in big containers or in yeah, the round some of them have a little more space so candy corn plus is a pumpkin that we have um, that's a favorite of mine it's a pumpkin, so it takes a little more space, um, but this one doesn't, it's a compact plant for a pumpkin, so it would grow in a large container, like a half bar wine barrel size container okay. would be ideal. Um, it has a powdery mildew resistance, that's what the plus is about. Oh, that's um, nice. Which is important in some areas of the country, so you end up with a lot of little pumpkins, even under the, you know, the pressure of the powdery mildew. Um, now, you said little pumpkins, so this is a... Um, they're kid great, size. They're like a pound. Yeah, they're a okay. pound each, um, so they're nice for decorating. Kids like them. It's a super early variety, so it doesn't take a lot of time. You know, you can plant it depending on where you are in the country, you know, July or August, and still have fruit um, for Halloween. Sure, get time. the first crop of beans out of there and plant some yep. pumpkins, I guess. Exactly. Like that. So that's, that's candy corn plus. That's a favorite, um, and that's another one that's good for kids because it grows fast too and then they like to see the fruit when it's done and you can go out I like to go out and count them and the flowers are easy to find <laughs> yeah um, and, <laughs> and, and you can teach that. you can teach kids about biology with with plants in the squash family too yeah they're much easier to observe than some of the smaller ones you know the flowers on a tomato or pepper are so small but it's fun sure. to look at the pumpkins or 
good for trying to point out. Now, have you ever tried eating the flowers from that pumpkin? I have not eaten the flowers on that particular pumpkin. I eat the squash flowers a lot, uh-huh. um, but I haven't tried that. Well, and how's that pumpkin for being scratchy? Some pumpkins are pretty scratchy. It does have some spines, but they're not too bad. Okay, that's good. I remember falling into a pump, big pumpkin patch when I was a kid, and it was <laughs> the big old-fashioned kind that practically had daggers sticking out at you. Yeah, they can be dangerous. <laughs> and I do. Oh, now I know why my grandmother said stay out of the pumpkin patch. So <laughs> she meant it. Um, yeah. <laughs> You, you learn fast when you're four years old and you fall yep. into something like that. Okay. Yeah, when we come back, I'd like to talk some, about some more different varieties that we've got going out there. And we'll be right back after this. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and my guest today is Heather Kibble from Sakata, and we're talking new varieties of vegetables that Sakata has come out with. So, so far we've talked about a pumpkin, the Little Birdie series of little tiny tomatoes, and Hungarian cheese pepper. What else you got going? We've had, um, a couple years ago, we introduced a um, really small butternut squash called Little Dipper. Um, it's a two-pound fruit, so good if you've got a smaller household size. Um, that one is a vigorous vine, so it's for people with a little more space or a lot more space. Um, winter squash can be kind of big. But if they're a gardener with less space, there's um, Tivoli is an older All-America Selections winner. It's a spaghetti squash um, that grows to four or five pounds, but like the Candy Corn Plus, it's on a bush habit plant, so the plant doesn't get huge. You could grow it in a large container or in a regular, like, garden box. Um, how how big around would you say it gets? Is it I would give it about four. Tivoli gets, yeah, about three feet wide, and it grows in kind of a circle, so um, I'd give it about three or four feet of space. Okay. In all directions, so <laughs> space, the your of your hill. <laughs> space your containers or your hills farther apart than you would for a yeah. that grows more vertically. Yeah, and that's the spaghetti squash, which has been really popular in the farmer's market the last couple of years. Um, people are getting excited about that as, as the low-carb um, diet craze has kind of gone around. It's something to replace some of your carbs with. That's so interesting because it was, it was real popular... Well, it was popular, I guess, when it first came out, and then it seemed to sort of disappear. I grew it for quite a number of years, and I'll have to get out to the farmer's markets and see if it's popular here. Of course, you're in California, and the food grazes start there first. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so so we've seen that one for probably three or four years. Um, And if people haven't grown spaghetti squash, you really need to give it a try. It looks like spaghetti. It's stringy like spaghetti you can cover it with sauce or just do it kind of you know with butter and and some herbs and salt and pepper little garlic lots of different ways yep people um like to make um i know this sounds crazy but they will make like a quiche crust or pie crust with some of the squashes too Uh, oh what like maybe you're seeing with cauliflower i don't know they're using it like oh yeah cauliflower in a lot of places um I've seen so a lot of, lot of tomatoes. <laughs> I, I never thought about using squash for it. I always thought squash might be a little bit too moist for that. Yeah, you have to dry it out a bit. Um, 
to get it to work. But it's fun. Another fun one, this is totally off topic, but I like to slice um, zucchini squash with a mandolin and use that in place of uh, lasagna noodles. So you layer, and you can also do that with eggplant. Um, makes a nice pasta replacement if you slice it really thin and layer that in with your cheese and your sauce. Instead I will have to give that a try. I've got a mandolin that's that sitting out dish. in my cup. Get in the my mandolin out. <laughs> yeah. I, I used to use it a lot in my pickling days. Yes. You know, because it made short, short work back in the days before there were food processors, too. Yeah. Well, uh-huh. I know a lot of people use food processors for that, too. But whatever you use, the really thin slices of vegetables has been really popular here the last couple of years. Another one oh. we see in the farmer's market um, quite a bit is watermelon radish. Um, and that's another thing that's really good sliced really thin with a mandolin into salads or whatever. Like now, how hot Beautiful. is a watermelon radish? They it look depends. They're beautiful to look at. Um, they can be really mild or they can be stronger depending on the season of the year that they're grown in and the conditions they were in. So if there's some variation in temperature, you'll get the stronger flavor. And if it's a nice mild spring, you'll get the nice sweet um, flavor that I like the best. <laughs> I will. I will run to farmers market when it, we've had two or three weeks of nice mild weather. I will go to farmers market specifically start looking for watermelon radishes because I know they're going to be really good. I'm with you. I do not like hot radishes. Yeah. Yeah. No way. Uh, and some of the most bitter disappointments I had as a kid was you know <laughs> plant radishes. Plant radishes are good, great for kids to grow. Well, no, they're not. Yeah. No, they're not. Not unless you got like really good weather for them. Yeah, yeah. We're, uh, we're like growing beets. carrots. Beets are a little lower, but yeah, carrots are another good one for kids because they're sweeter. Um, yeah, but, like but they the take a long beets. time too. But yes, you do have to have a little patience for those. Yeah. And I had no patience when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> but so the radishes would have been great. And, you know, they come up in just a couple of days and they grow really fast. But, you know, and then they, they taste like you're going to burn your mouth on them. No, thank yeah. you. Yeah, it depends on the conditions. We have one called Stargazer that's really mild. It's grown in the early spring or the fall. I wouldn't grow it in okay. the summer um, for that reason you're talking about. Okay. Is Stargazer... Or watermelon radish. Which one is? Uh, watermelon radish is the type, and then stargazer is the variety. Stargazer is a variety of watermelon radish. Okay. Yes, yes. I don't think I've ever seen a named watermelon radish. Um, yeah, it's a it's a fairly new one. We came out with it a couple of years ago. Okay, and we'll have to go looking. So go looking oh, baby, for that. So what else do you have? That I mentioned eggplant. Uh, we have an eggplant called shaku. It's an Asian type which has the dark, the calyx is the stem part that's at the top of the eggplant. That's usually green. On this variety, it's purple, um, which is just beautiful. It has beautiful purple flowers. The eggplant are really mild. They mature in about 70 to 80 days. They're about six or eight inches long. And um, so that's good for people that have a shorter season, either because it gets cold or it gets hot. So it's fairly easy to grow. And the flowers and non, of eggplants are so gorgeous. Yeah, I would grow yeah. the plants just to look at the flowers. <laughs> yeah, I, and I'm, I usually put one out front and center just to take, just to leave, you know, so people yeah. can see the pic- the flowers on them. Because people don't even know that what eggplant flowers look like. And everybody goes, well, yeah. and it's yeah. so pretty. 
Yeah, most and then people you get are fruit. familiar with the plant. Yeah, and it's yeah. got some yeah. interesting color variation in it that most plants in the garden don't. So, it, again, it's another pretty one. And it can be grown in a container in the ground. Now, what color is your new eggplant? Deep purple. Deep purple. Okay. So, so it's deep purple, purple with a purple, purple. And it's, yeah, purple calyx, bright white on the inside. And purple flowers. Okay. So I've grown some Asian eggplants that are white and some that are various colors, some lavenders. There's a lot of neat choices out there. I'll have to give that one a try. That sounds like fun. And its name again was? Shiku, S-H-I-K-O-U. It means supreme in Japanese. Ah, that that sounds like something that should be in people's gardens, something with a name like supreme. How can it be bad, right? It's beautiful. Um, And so what else have you got going there? Um, another new variety from last year was um, Ruby Crush Tomato, and it's a determinate. The plant's a little bit bigger than the Red Robin that we were talking about, so maybe the plant is 12 to 14 inches tall, um, but it has the grape-shaped fruit, so that's the oblong uh, uh-huh. little fruit you find in the grocery store. And sometimes you're finding those in home gardens, too. And it's determinate, so it's early and... Um, Productive, great flavor on that one. Another space saver because it can be grown in a larger container. Uh, How many days to maturity is it? Um, That one's about 65, I believe. Okay. I always like to grow small tomatoes for kids. Just let them come in and pick. Yeah, have themselves a handful. It's a good experience. The grape tomatoes are be able to go out and taste them. Right. Yeah, and the grape tomatoes are big enough that they can hold in their hand. A lot of little ones, like sun gold and stuff, if they try to grab it, if they're, you know, that the two-year-old age group where they're yeah. not quite coordinated <laughs> and they tend to mush all over them and then they wipe it all on their clothes. and <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You don't want to need to. You want it to hold up well enough to be able to harvest without exploding. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it's fun. Now, I, I should say that you were kind enough to send me some seeds to try, and one of the ones that she sent me is a pea, and I would like to know about this. Yeah, pea. your comment on two-year-olds made me think of that. My son's grown now, but when he was a baby, he would, the first thing I found him out in the garden um, harvesting on his own, I was missing him one time and found him in the garden behind the pea plants harvesting <laughs> um, snow peas which apparently he had seen me eat because I hadn't trained him to do that yet. But <laughs> And he still will do that. I plan it every year for him. And uh, so we have a series of peas. Three of them are smaller and can be grown in containers or in small spaces, and then one is full-sized for folks that want to have, you know, a little, want to put it on a trellis or have it be uh, kind of a taller plant. Um, those are called little snap pea crunch, little snow pea purple, and little snow pea white. And then the taller one is little snap pea petite. And I know that name is funny, but it's um, called petite because <laughs> pods. But they're nice, small. If you're a snap pea connoisseur, as I am, <laughs> yes. they're the nice, small, kind of really tender pods. They don't, they're not as big, and sometimes they get a little bit tough. So these are nice and small. I love snap peas. The problem is I never get them into the house. You know, I just graze in the garden when I'm out there. Now, the purple purple one you mentioned, is that a purple purple pod? The pod is green, just the flowers are purple. Yeah, so it's a nice ornamental. It matures in 55 days. 
which is early, early. Um, mm-hmm. If people now perhaps in your part of the country or places where they have a really short spring, a little snow pea white is a good choice. It's a snow pea, so that's the flat potted kind. Um, but it matures in just about 30 days. So what? That, um, that's a great variety for you folks. 30 really days for a pea? 30 days for snow peas. Oh. Um, and it's powdery and mildew resistant, too, which can be super important in the air. Oh, my. So that's little oh. snow pea white. So that's a favorite of mine. We grow that in containers for some of our shows um, at Cicada, so that's been popular that way, too. Uh, I can't get over a 30-day pea. And we eat those um, also at work as a snack. <laughs> you have to tell people, hey, that's for our display. Please don't eat it. <laughs> the tomatoes, they leave the hot peppers alone, but the tomatoes and the uh, <laughs> peas, you have to monitor and keep people from eating. <laughs> well, I, I can see how that would easily be the case. But I'm, I'm, just, <laughs> I, I'm just sitting here dumbfounded at a 30-day pea. People I miss them. Yeah, I have to always. Work. 50 is the average, up to 60 or 70 sometimes. Uh-huh. Um, so I always have to caution people to be sure and go out and check, you know, if you're not in your trial or your garden every day, you want to make sure and keep an eye on it so you don't miss it. That is wild. Now, how long do they, I assume that like most peas, they go over real fast to pretty quick. Them, yeah, pretty the more quickly. you pick, yeah. the more you pick, the more you'll get. Um, but eventually when mm-hmm. the weather warms up or cools off, depending on yeah. where you are, they'll stop producing as quickly. Well, I've got some farm I've got a farmer friend here that I think will be very interested in that because as you yeah. mentioned, it does spring does come really fast some years. Yeah. And yeah. you, you and go from cold. being cold and wet to ninety degrees and just yeah. about ready to <laughs> die in the garden. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't leave you much time for spring crops. <laughs> no, no it doesn't. That's you know Radishes are kind of a waste as a spring crop. When I grow yeah. them at all, I grow them as a fall crop. Turnips, too, yeah. because it just gets too hot. We have yeah. to take another little break, but when we come back, we'll be talking about more new varieties and, and where people might find these and how, if they're a farmer, they can get hold of them because these are not peas that you're going to find um, just any place. But we'll be right back after this. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. My guest today is Heather Kibble from Cicada Seed Company. And you may not have heard about Cicada, but they are big plant breeders that have been around for 100 years. And they will talk a little bit at the end of the show about where where you can get some seeds because you're not going to probably see Cicada seeds sitting in your corner store. But 
we're talking new varieties that they've come out with. So what else do you have that's new and enticing for a home gardener? Another new variety we have that's different from the rest of the things that are out on the market would be Lilliput uh, cantaloupe. It's a miniature cantaloupe, so it's about the size of a large grapefruit. grapefruit. So you um, cut it in half and it's two servings. We like to scoop the seeds out and put uh, uh, ice cream or yogurt, yes. depending on your <laughs> diet at the time. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, center of that, or you could use it for a fruit salad, your blueberries, something like that is fun. Um, it has, though it's a tiny cantaloupe, it has the flavor of a large, uh, like, eastern muskmelon, that um, great, great scent and flavor and texture that you would expect in a larger melon, all in a little tiny package, which is very convenient. Um, That's good, because I've tried a couple of the smaller ones, and they just didn't, they just didn't hold it for me. Yeah, like a lot the of the time they get come, from Virginia or something. Yeah, yeah. A lot of the time, the breeding lines are coming from the California cantaloupes, which are were traditionally bred for storage and not so much for <laughs> flavor and scent as the eastern kind of melons that are grown for the farmers market and more local uses. Yeah, you gotta gotta give it to the farmers market stuff though. In uh, the flavor is just absolutely amazing. But you're right; yeah. it doesn't keep as long. Um, I once brought up, I guess, a half a dozen of them up to my sister when I was traveling through on my way to her place, and um, they, they, I thought we'd go through them before they died, but no, half a dozen yeah, they, obviously too many. Of course, they, they were big cantaloupes, too. Yeah. <laughs> we're always trying to find a balance between storage, you know, because you have to get it from the field to wherever the um, final user is. Um, yeah. But there's a balance between storage and flavor and sugars, and a lot of the time the things that make something so fresh and wonderful don't make it, you know, also make it difficult to store. So there's a balance there. Yeah. On the other hand, for the home gardener, growing your own is just such a wonderful thing. And you can yeah, you don't have right to worry about any of that. <laughs> yep. You just go right, right out in the garden and pick it and eat it or, or do what I do. Sometimes I just walk out there and say, oh, we're going to have this for dinner and that for dinner. <laughs> yeah, I do that. Menu around I go there. to the garden for my snacks. If I need a snack, I usually just go outside. <laughs> and I have a confession to make. I, keep, I always plant a couple of sun gold tomatoes right at the right at the edge of my path going down my driveway <laughs> so that I can just, I can pick on my way to the mailbox or whatever. Um, yep. Every time I go past, I snatch a tomato. It makes a nice snack. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we've got a great muskmelon cantaloupe. What else you got? Lily put. Um, and then if you really do like the larger melons, we have one called Avatar, which is the other end of the spectrum. Um, it's about 7 to 10 pounds, also with that wonderful flavor. So you, if you're somebody that wants to um, have the largest cantaloupe in the neighborhood, <laughs> Avatar <laughs> is the way to go. Um, that one's been a hit the last couple of years. Now, and how is it kind on, of a farmer's market? Uh, is, is, are there anything, any cantaloupes out there that are resistant to pickle worms? Um, I'm not familiar with that. I haven't heard of that. Oh, you're lucky. (laughs) (laughs) If you don't know pickle worms, you are so so lucky. (laughs) Yes, they lay their eggs uh, on the fruit or right around the calyx usually, and when they bore, when a little worm hatches, it bores into the skin. 
I'll send you a picture, but I will warn, you know, don't don't look at it while you're eating or anything. (laughs) (laughs) It's really gross. And on on a cantaloupe that I had been waiting and waiting for, and it was just starting to net up a little bit. And and all of a sudden, I walked out there one day, and I just, oh, gross. It's bad. I say it's the squirrels keep track for me of whether or not the melon is ready, because I swear on the day it's ready is when they Mm -hmm. choose to eat it before you can get to it. (laughs) Yeah, and if you've got got, uh, turtles in your yard, if you back up to a pond or something like that, especially snapping turtles, they love ripe melons. Oh, you don't, you don't have a chance. <laughs> we don't have turtle fears. So. <laughs> we don't. <laughs> we don't have enough ponds, probably. Oh, I'm in Southern well, California. It's pretty dry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You don't get our 50 inches of rain a year, and that's 55, no. zero, not 15. <laughs> yeah. We're lucky to have five. <laughs> okay. Well, if they ever come out with a pickle worm-resistant cantaloupe that tastes good, let me know. I will let you I know. Will. I will sell it all up and down the East Coast for you. (laughs) Okay, so what else you got? We we talked about eggplants and some tomatoes and some pumpkins. Yeah, we never did get the peppers, did we? Um, Peppers are another favorite of mine. Our recent favorite has been uh, shishito is the type. It's um, like a snacking pepper, I guess you would call it. It's not super sweet. but not hot either. Every now and again, you'll get a hot pepper. Um, they say like one in ten maybe will have a tiny bit of heat to it. I've never come across one that had any heat though. <laughs> um, and that's called Takara. And there, it's a pretty plant. It's kind of about 18 to 24 inches tall, and it sets lots of these little lime green fruit. They have a thin wall. You harvest them and just fry them in a little olive oil, really quick for like a minute or two, or you could pop them on the grill. Um, little oil, little salt, and it makes a nice snack like you'd have popcorn or peanuts or... Um, yeah, and it's a whole like lot that. better for you than... Very healthy, chips. as long as... Yeah, keep the oil light, and uh, <laughs> it's super, super healthy, and they make a nice snack, and that's an easy-to-grow variety, and you really only would need one or two plants, and it could produce quite a bit for you. Um, so it's how, big is the, how big is the fruit on it? They're about um, two, about two to two and a half inches long, and about three quarters of an inch at the shoulder. So just just enough for one purse. Bite size. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One bite. Unless you're like me and you want to eat them all. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, if you're really a pepper fan or you have a lot of barbecues or parties, maybe put in three or four plants. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I don't know how many people do this, but I like to throw, I'll marinate some vegetables, you know, some eggplant, maybe um, cut in strips or chunks, and um, especially the Asian eggplant, cut them lengthwise, marinate them, throw them on the grill with a bunch of peppers. Yeah. And it's yeah, that's a really nice summer. addition. Maybe throw in some, throw on some Vidalia onions, too. Yep. We like some zucchini for that, uh, either the yellow or the Mm -hmm. green zucchini. Yellow can add a nice color to the grill if you have a lot of the other darker colors going. I I miss summer because I really like to get out there and and grill those. Sometimes we'll just have a meal just of grilled veggies out there. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, forget the rest of the stuff. Just have you don't the rest of the stuff. <laughs> yeah, you don't need it. Who needs meat when you've got a got a grilled portobello mushroom? Yeah, not in the middle of summer. You don't. That's for no, sure. <laughs> for sure. 
Okay, so what else do you have? You have the peppers, tomatoes. Um, do you have anything off the wall, like um, an, an unusual regular squash variety or zucchini variety or an We have a new round um, green zucchini called bocce, like bocce ball, because it's a ball uh-huh. shape. <laughs> um, so that's a nice zucchini that's kind of different from what you find the rest of the, you know, in the rest of the grocery store and things. You can harvest those. We were just talking about grilling. I harvest those really small and just cut them in half. Um, and they're nice on the grill that way or, um, you know, sauteed just really quick. They have a kind of a nutty flavor that's different than green zucchini. Huh, interesting. That's bocce. The zucchini by itself often tastes, you know, well, tastes like whatever else you put on it. Yeah, it can be a little bland. It has a little bit of a nutty flavor to it, um, which is nice, I think. Sometimes it's nice to mix things up a bit. Um, we've been working a lot on uh, salad greens. We didn't get to that during this discussion, but salad greens are a popular cicada crop. Things like baby Swiss chard, spinach, um, baby beets grown just for the leaves. Mm-hmm. And another quick turning crop if you're a home gardener and looking to get started in the spring, maybe with containers or a small space in the ground then some baby greens are a good way to get out there and <laughs> get started. Do you have anything from um, microgreens or are these just are, are these all grown just as harvest when they're when the leaves are just a couple inches long? Yeah, most of these work for microgreens also. Um, we've tested quite a few of the varieties for the microgreen size and then up to the baby leaf size. Microgreens are another great indoor option, especially yeah, in the I've winter or I've got oh, some go growing under lights in my utility room right now. Yeah, yeah, and if you're somewhere hot, sometimes that's a nice thing to do during the summer because a lot of the time you get tomatoes and peppers in the hot part of the summer, but you don't have any fresh, you know, green <laughs> right. things. Right, it's too hot outside for them. It's too hot outside, so I like microgreens that time of year also. I like microgreens to throw on a regular salad, you know, romaine or something like that, to give them them something different. And throwing some little beet leaves or something like that, um, or little little tiny baby arugulas that are just barely sprouted sprouted before they get, you know, kind of tough and nasty and bitter. Yeah, yeah. Okay. We've only got a couple of minutes. Now, since people can't find your seeds under the cicada name, where are they going to go look for them? Yeah, we don't promote the cicada name. Uh, We're a breeder producer, so we sell through distributors, so we promote our distributors. But the variety names um, carry through. So Uh if you look for any of the varieties I mentioned online, they should be fairly easy to find with your regular seed supplier. Um, a couple in particular that carry our varieties would be like a park seed. Garden trends are some good home garden sources. If you're a farmer's market grower, somebody like Harris seeds or Twilly seeds are good sources also. Okay. And park seeds I know is in um, in South Carolina. South Carolina. Where is, where is Harris slash garden trends? Harris and garden trends are both up in New York. New York. State New York. Okay. And then Twilly is also in South Carolina. Okay. And, of course, with mail order these days, you can get anything. They could be anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there are regional suppliers in different areas. You know, you can always find somebody local if that's your preference. That's the wonderful thing about buying seed online these days. You can find somebody local if you want to. Yeah. I really like doing that. 
support your local businesses whenever you can. For sure. Yeah. And they will have tested things in your area. They all run their own trials and try it in their area before they sell it. So um, that's another good reason to look for your local company, your local seed company. And a lot of your varieties are AAS winners, and they are also tested all over the country in all different yeah, climates. Yeah, you see that. Correct. If you see that AAS logo, you know that it's been tested all across the U.S. and up into Canada and will grow well anywhere. So they can get something that's going to be good in their climate. Unless you have a really weird year, and that happens. But that that's happens about all the time we have, <laughs> again, for this uh, show. But we will be back talking more gardening next week. And, Heather, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you. It's my pleasure. All righty. We'll be back with more gardening here next. You're listening to America's Web Radio Online. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.